gospel, if you want to turn to Proverbs chapter 9, uh, that's where we'll be most of the day today, and we'll put a lot of supporting verses up on the screen today. I missed you guys last week. I was in Farmville, Virginia, doing a wedding, um, and if you're wondering where that is, it's nowhere. Um, just in the middle of nowhere, uh, but you get those Farmville requests on Facebook. Apparently, that's where they're coming from, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, we'll be in Proverbs 9. Uh, the, the way we're going with our teaching is we're going to be spending this week and next week in the book of Proverbs, and then we're going to spend three weeks going through some of our core values as a church, gospel, community, and mission, and then we're going to jump into the book of Mark uh, starting in uh, the beginning of October. So, so that's where we're going. If you want to read ahead, the book of Mark would be a good place to start studying and really uh, just immersing yourself in over the next year. Uh, but in Proverbs chapter 9, uh, the, the teacher here lays out what wisdom is supposed to look like for us. As we've gone through this book, um, it's been very clear that, that the teacher is trying to teach his teenage son how to be wise and how to avoid being a fool. Uh, he just keeps coming back with all these different one-line nuggets of wisdom. He brings uh, teaching. He brings riddles. He brings all kinds of different forms so that, so that the boys can learn, so that they can hear, here's what it means uh, for me to be wise. And we need this because in our lives, many of the decisions that we make are not a matter just of right and wrong. It's not just a matter of I have to choose moral decision, decisions and stay away from immoral decisions. There are a lot of decisions where there's just wise and unwise where we have to make decisions based on uh, something other than just a clear sense of what's right and what's wrong. Um, there, there, there are different things for us to consider that are out there, and we need to be somewhat like Olympic athletes who train our minds to know what wisdom is so that when we have decisions to make, we're able to make them uh, even when we don't have the clear right and wrong. So this teacher uh, throws out all these one-liners, all these nuggets of wisdom, um, but he probably knows pretty well how teenage guys' minds work. He knows that just throwing out wisdom, eventually they're gonna, he's going to start to lose them and they start to trail off a little bit. And so now in chapter 9, he, he taps into the two things that young men think about more than anything, women and food. And, and so in chapter 9, he presents wisdom and folly as these two women who are making dinner and inviting him to come. So, so, so as the boy's trailing off, not really listening, the teacher says, okay, there's a pretty lady, she's making dinner, and you're invited. And immediately he says, okay, I'm with you. I'm following you. I, I see where we're going here. And so he's able to frame wisdom and folly in, uh, in, in this picture of these two women, the lady wisdom and the woman folly, so that we can see how those two are different, so we can see how they're similar, and so we can learn to be wise too. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would teach us as we look at it. Uh, help us to know you better as a result. Help us to understand what this says. And I pray that you'd make us wise. Uh, Lord, we know that ultimate wisdom is to be found in Jesus. And so I pray that you would make us people who love and worship Jesus and follow him and then live the wise lives that come as a result. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So the first woman here is the Lady Wisdom. And she says, if you're simple, if you lack sense, come in. I've made dinner for you. Come and feast with me. Now, if you skip to verse 13, it says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. 
Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, in the depths of the grave. So there are these two women, uh, wisdom and folly, and they're calling out to us. And there are some similarities between these two, which sometimes will make it difficult for us to discern what's wise and discern what's foolish. So let's start by looking at the similarities and then talk about the differences between these really two distinct ways for us to live. Um, First of all, both of these women are calling out from the high places in town. They're both calling out from prominent places, which means that wisdom is available to us. A lot of times we think that the place you find wisdom is in some secret place where it can only be found by meeting with a mystic guru up on a mountaintop somewhere. And if we can can finally search it out and have an extended period of fasting and transcend into some alternate state, that's where we'll find wisdom. But in this passage, wisdom's calling out all over the place. Wisdom's going up to the most prominent places in the city and saying, turn to my ways and be wise. It's sending out messengers. So if we're not wise people, the reason that we're not wise is not because wisdom wasn't available to us. There's actually another reason, which we'll get to in a second. But folly is also available. So folly's out there calling out in all the same places. It's just as prominent. It's just a big deal. And both of them are saying, turn to my ways. So both wisdom and folly are all over the place. They're both calling out. Secondly, they're both calling to the same people. They're calling to the simple. Now, when we talk about the simple, we're not talking about stupid people or unsophisticated people. We're talking about people who are not yet formed in their wisdom. Simple people are not just rednecks. Uh, Simple people can be uh, high-culture simple people. They can be low-culture simple people. So when we think simple, we tend to think these are the guys watching NASCAR and listening to country music. But in the Bible, simple people can be high-culture, low-culture. They just haven't formed their wisdom yet. It it, it doesn't really say where, where they are culturally. And sometimes these simple people are called fools in the Bible. Now, there are really different kinds of fools. There are the full-blown, hardened fools who have heard wisdom and have rejected it and just decided to be fools. But then these simple fools are people who haven't learned it yet. They just haven't picked up wisdom yet. They're just kind of blank. And because they're blank, they're not yet wise. Now, it's not a problem to be simple or at least to start out as a simple person. This is how children start out. Uh, If you listen to Proverbs 22, verse 15, it says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from it. So little children, just by nature, lack wisdom. They're quick to believe fantasies, they're easily molded, they're easily swayed, and, and we understand that that's the way they're supposed to be when they're kids. Um, we were at my aunt and uncle's house in Buffalo a couple months ago, and all the kids are running around playing, and they ran up into my aunt's bedroom, and my aunt makes furniture, and they, they, up in her bedroom, all over the dresser were thimbles. And my daughter, Sophie, who is six, she um, was and probably still is on a Peter Pan kick. And, and in Peter Pan, there's a scene where Peter is fighting Hook, and then Peter basically gets knocked down, and then he reaches and pulls a thimble out of his pocket that Wendy had given to him, and then that's where he gets his strength back, and he gets back up into the fight. And so in Sophie's mind, a thimble is what makes you fly. And so she goes into this room, and there are thimbles all over the dresser. And she goes, and she asks my aunt, she says, do those things work? And, um, and do, they, do they make you fly? And so my aunt sits down with her and says, oh, yeah, they, they really do. And she explains to her how you can fly with these thimbles on. And so Sophie, for the rest of the night, is running around with a thimble on her thumb, jumping off like two stairs up, uh, trying to fly. We're saying, okay, lock the windows because Sophie's pretty convinced she can fly right now. 
in a six-year-old, that's cute. In a six-year-old, that's appropriate because you're supposed to be simple like that when you're a child. Now, when I do that, that's just weird, um, especially when I dress up like Peter Pan first. Everybody says, this is, this is strange. This isn't the way it's supposed to be because you know you're not supposed to be simple anymore. So it's okay to start out simple, but it's not okay to stay there. And both wisdom and folly are calling out to the simple, saying you need to turn to my ways so that you can learn my ways. You know, one problem with being simple is that you do tend to believe things very easily. You're very gullible. Proverbs 14, 15 says, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. So simple fools are people who believe lies. They're easy to manipulate as a result. They're easily swayed. They're driven more by their emotions than by arguments. And, and the truth is there are many churches that do try to manipulate the simple. They know that most people out there are more easily swayed by emotions than by arguments, and so we'll do what we can to have people make emotional decisions uh, and then to, to make emotional commitments and then to give a bunch of money riding a wave of emotion. And the Bible says that people who are easily swayed by that kind of emotional, who, who are driven by their emotions, are simple people. Now, now we should be people who are, are generous, who are quick to commit to God, but we should be people who think those things through and consider our steps and make wise decisions. Now, I don't know, if you ever watch televangelists on TV, some of them are, are good, but then there are a number of them where you just watch the way that they prey on people's emotions, the way they just get people to give money, and then they fly around on three private jets while people who are making $20,000 a year are giving a quarter of their income, believing false promises, swayed by emotions, Those are people who are simple, and they're people who are very easy to manipulate, very easily to sway. Now, as a church, I want to be people who do feel things deeply. Um, There's a big role for emotions in the Christian life, but I also want to be people who think things out, who think things through, who are able to, in our minds, make arguments when we hear propositions being made, and who are more swayed by solid arguments than we are by emotions. We don't want just the emotions to carry us and lead us and direct us. We want those to follow the truth that we believe. Uh, We shouldn't be people who are driven by the most spectacular things, who are driven by the most forceful people, who are driven by the most dramatic experiences. We should be people who have the long term, stick with it, grow where we're planted. Um, I'm going to check into things. I'm going to study things kind of mentality. Uh, We don't want to be a church that tries to manipulate simple people just so we can get market share. We want to be a church that offers truth so that when you leave here, you feel like your feet are standing on something. You feel like there was truth that you were given and you were strengthened, that you heard an argument from Scripture that you're called to believe, not just you felt some emotions that you're called to jump into. We have to be careful not to be people who are just simple. And and they're not only manipulated by church leaders, they're also manipulated by political leaders all over the place. Um, You'll see it this year in election season. Watch the debates. You'll see it from both parties. You'll see these guys who are standing up and who are trying to get the one-liner zingers that'll be a soundbite on the news as opposed to laying out a solid argument because they know people are more swayed by their emotions. They're going to be more swayed by a headline, more swayed by six words that they said in a row that made everybody cheer than by an argument and a plan that they're laying out. And so because they know they can sway a lot of voters that way, that's what they do. And we'll all see it this year. And Christians are very easily sometimes swayed by people who are looking for votes. We're pretty easy to play, pretty easy to manipulate, and we shouldn't be that way. Now, when, when we see simple people whose wisdom is, is pretty unformed, one of the things that we've got to admit is that's all of us. 
None of us are fully wise. None of us are truly wise. In fact, the only one, as we read through all of Scripture, who's fully, truly wise in every way is Jesus. None of us measure up to that. None of us can say that in every way I think wisely, in every way I embody wisdom, only Jesus is like that. So when we hear that wisdom and folly are calling out to the simple, we've got to recognize that all of us in some ways fall into that category of simple, and we've got to make sure that we're listening to the right voice. So wisdom and folly are both available. They're both calling to the simple, and both are making promises. Notice that they both promise food and drink. They both have a lot to offer. Uh, Wisdom's offering her feast. Folly's offering her feast. And so this would be important for us to realize that we shouldn't be people who are arrogant Christians who look down on people who sin, and we say, well, why is it that they would ever consider sinning? Well, according to the Bible, sin does have something to offer. It does offer pleasure for a season. People sin because it's fun. They don't just say, I want to do the most wicked thing I can do. They believe a lie of sin, and then they jump into that, they run after that, and they follow that. Um, So the way of folly does have something to offer. It does have a feast. And we don't want to look down on people and assume that the only reason you would ever sin is because you're stupid or have the most wicked motives. The, The way of folly actually offers something. It would also be wrong for us to say that the way of wisdom is just the way of misery, where you have out there things that are fun and things that are not fun, and things that are not fun are the things that Christians should choose because anything that feels good we should repent of. Well, that's not biblical at all. Wisdom's offering a feast too. There are benefits to being wise. There, there's a feast for us to, to enjoy that wisdom is offering, and so we can't look at that and say that wisdom really doesn't have any joy to offer. In fact, it offers a ton. So both are making promises. Both are calling to the simple. They both have a lot to offer. Folly is very good at mimicking wisdom. So in some ways, these two women look very similar in this passage, but the two are also very different. Uh, first of all, the character of wisdom and folly are completely different. Notice how wisdom is working hard to build her house. She's working, she's diligent, she's got the seven pillars in this house, so it's a big, spacious house, working hard, and then folly is just sitting there. So the way of wisdom is a way that takes an awful lot of work to grow in. Uh, Becoming wise isn't something that just happens to us because we take the path of least resistance. Becoming wise takes work. Folly is just sitting there and waiting. So it doesn't take work to become a fool. That's just going to be the natural path of the simple. If we just put everything on cruise control, we just coast, we'll naturally become full-blown fools if we're simple. To become wise takes work. And so these two are very different in that way. Also, these two have a very different message. Uh, Notice that wisdom and folly, they're, they're different because folly doesn't ask the simple to leave anything to become a fool. Wisdom's up there saying, turn from your simple ways and live. Turn from the way that you're living, live this wise way, and that's where you'll find real life. Folly doesn't say you have to turn from anything. Folly just says, keep doing what you're doing, come right on in. You don't have to change anything. The way of wisdom really begins when we repent. When we turn from sin, we turn from unbelief, we turn from the things that were driving us before, and we turn to Jesus. To go to the way of folly, we don't need to turn from anything at all. You know, when we worship Jesus, we become like him. And this is really what wisdom is. As we read through the book of Proverbs, it's just explaining what a life of following after Jesus looks like, what it looks like when we worship him and then apply the truths of his gospel to every area of our lives. And a big principle that runs all throughout the scripture is that whatever it is that we worship, we become like that. 
Now, you're, you're not off the hook if you come in and you say, well, I'm an atheist, I don't worship anything. Everybody worships something. Everybody has something that drives them, something that they live for, something that they're running after. And the way of the human heart is that whatever that thing is that we run after, we start to mold into its image and we become like it. Listen to Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So it says if you make an idol, you eventually become like an idol. If you trust in an idol, you eventually become like it. Just like an idol is worthless, eventually if you run after worthless things, you become worthless yourself. Listen to the second part of Jeremiah 2, verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? So when you go after that which is worthless, you become worthless yourself. If you worship money, you'll become cold and shallow. If you worship fame, you'll become vain and empty. If you worship Jesus, you'll become wise like Jesus. And this book of Proverbs is telling us, here's what a wise life is like. Here's what it's like to follow after Jesus. Here's what it's like to understand the world God made because you're viewing the whole thing through the lens of the gospel. Uh, What I mean by that is the Christian gospel is the message that even though we're more sinful than we could ever imagine— Because of the love and the grace of God, he came to us, he died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again, so that if we'll trust in him, we have everlasting life, and we're more loved and accepted by God than we could ever dream. That's that's the message of Christianity. And if we believe that, that makes sense of an awful lot of the world. For example, the gospel says that Jesus Christ is God who became flesh. He became a man. He stepped into this material world. So therefore, the material world can't be bad. One of the big parts of being wise is understanding that the world that God made is a good thing. If it were sinful to to have a body, if it were a bad thing to have a body, if it were a bad thing to be material, God never would have done it. But because we look at everything through the lens of the gospel, we're able to, to be wise and say, no, this world is a good thing. Also, as Christians, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for us. So that means that even though the world is good, something must have gone wrong. Something has gone badly here, and that's why he had to die. So we're in a good world that God made. It is the way that it was made to be, but it's fallen and twisted, and there are things that are wrong with it. There are parts of it that are broken. Um, The fact that we believe as Christians that Jesus was here tells us what God's heart toward his world is, that he hasn't just ditched us, he's with us. He's, he's intimately involved with the world and the things that are going on in the world around us. And so as Christians, our whole view of the world flows from the cross. As worshipers of Jesus, who follow after Jesus, hopefully we become more and more like him, we become more and more wise. And by following Jesus, our steps are directed and we make wise decisions. When I was a high school kid, we used to go up to Niagara Falls. I grew up in Buffalo, and we'd go up to Niagara Falls pretty often. And there was a haunted house on the Canadian side called Nightmares. And so, um, you know, here it was, all God's natural beauty in Niagara Falls. And we thought we should go there so we can go in a dark room and be scared um, because 
because youth are simple. And so we, uh, we would go into this nightmare's haunted house, and the way this haunted house worked is it was pitch black in there, and there was a tiny little glowing red dot on the walls. And the only way that you knew how to walk, because you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, the only way you knew which direction to walk was to walk toward that glowing red dot. And as you were walking, there were people in there, I don't know if they had like night vision goggles on or something, but they were touching your face in the dark. And then um, all of a sudden the lights would flash and someone would come out with a chainsaw or a car would come barreling toward you and then stop with the torn blaring at the last second. And so um, the only way that our steps were directed was that tiny little glowing dot on the wall. And at any time you could yell nightmares and like ninjas would come and take you out of there and rescue you before you have a heart attack or something. And so... um, So all of our steps were directed by that one glowing red dot that we followed. And the truth is, everybody in life has that glowing red dot. We've all got something that we're following. If we're running after Jesus, then our steps will start to look wiser and wiser. If that little red dot that's driving us is something other than Jesus, then we're going to go off the cliff. We'll become increasingly foolish, and we've all got something that drives us. So so the message of wisdom is to turn from folly to repent, to turn, and to live. The message of folly is an easy one. Just keep doing what you're doing. Also, these two, while they're both making promises, they're actually making different promises. Wisdom offers a rich feast with all that your soul needs. Wisdom is not saying, turn from everything you delight in and come be wise. It says, I've got what what you delight in here. Notice she has meat. She slaughtered her animals. And this isn't a sacrifice. This is, there's food to eat there, and it's good. She's got a steak for you to feast on. Um, She has bread. She has mixed her wine. Uh, If you're a Baptist, that means that she mixed it with water to water it down. If you're anybody else, it means she put spices in it to make it better. And so either way, wisdom is calling and saying, I've mixed my wine. I've given you a feast of meat. I've given you this feast of bread. Come on in and enjoy it. So there's this big promise, this big lavish feast, and then there's a promise that Folly's making. Notice how Folly says, bread that's stolen in secret is sweet. So Folly just makes up a proverb here and says, you want to know what's good? You know, want to know what's fantastic? This bread that you're going to eat, you're going to enjoy it in the moment. It's going to satisfy your senses. You'll love what you have right here, but it's just going to be carbs, and in a few hours, you're going to be crashing. There's no protein there at all. I'm offering you this taste. I'm offering you this experience that very quickly is going to go away. And what makes it taste so good? It's stolen. Now, this is the lie that's been told from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the Bible. Do you remember when Satan comes up to Adam and Eve to tempt them, and he says, God told you not to eat that one fruit? What's the forbidden fruit that's the best one? Man, you'll become wise. You'll become like God. Fruit that's stolen in secret is sweet. He was saying that from the very beginning, that the best stuff that's out there is the stuff that God has forbidden. But the message of the Bible is that the best stuff that's out there is Jesus. The forbidden stuff offers pleasure, but the pleasure that it offers is only for a second, and it dissolves, it goes away, and in the end, it just leaves us crashed and lower than we began with. The pleasure that Jesus Christ offers is the enduring pleasure, the kind of pleasure where Psalm says at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That deep, soul-level pleasure that we all need, that's what wisdom offers us. Folly offers us a temporary thrill. I I definitely recommend the book to you, a book that changed my life when I read it in college, Desiring God, uh, The Meditations of a Christian Hedonist by John Piper. Um, it's, It's a book where it lays out the principle that our problem as Christians is not that we keep running after all kinds of good stuff and we should really be turning to the bad stuff, which is following Jesus. 
The principle it lays out is that we are far too easily pleased with sin when there's something so much better than the pleasure that sin offers us that that we could have in Christ. And the central metaphor of that book is from C.S. Lewis, where Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So here we are in our sin and in our folly making our mud pies. Jesus comes and offers us something so much better. Everything that we're running after in sin is, is ours in Jesus. All the pleasure that we think sin offers, Jesus offers far more. He offers it far more enduring. He offers it purely. He offers it with a clear conscience. Everything we're trying to satisfy with sin, Jesus offers us. But because we can't even conceive of how awesome Jesus' offer is, we're okay with our mud pies. We sit in the slums, messing around with sin, toying around with it. Jesus offers us something better, and we, know, we say, no, this is the good stuff. This is the oldest lie there is, that the best stuff is the sinful and forbidden stuff. And you even see it today. Like, if you go online, um, the best chocolate is the decadent chocolate. You have to have, like, a sinful label for it, because for something to be that good, it must be sin. Those brownies, they are sinfully delicious brownies, because that much pleasure must be sin. That's not Christian doctrine at all. Christian doctrine is that the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure is always to be found in Jesus, not to be found in sin. So these two women, they have different character, they have different messages, different promises, and really different destinations at the end. Um, Folly doesn't say where you end up if you follow her. Notice that wisdom is telling the truth. Wisdom saying, turn to me and you'll live. Folly just says, Bread that's stolen in secret is sweet. You'll enjoy this right now for a moment, but then in verse 18, the commentator has to back away and say, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. grave." So while Folly's just saying, I've got pleasure for you, Folly's never telling you where this ends up going. Folly knows how to accentuate the positive. This bread is going to taste very good, but Folly never tells you it's going to kill you in the end. No commercial would do that. You know, they're not going to sell you a Mac and say, here, you should buy this and spend a whole lot of extra money, and in seven years it's going to be in a dumpster. Well, no, if you're, you wouldn't, that's not a selling point for you. And so Folly has no long-term selling points. Folly's offering you something. Folly's offering you pleasure, but in the end, it just ends up in the grave. Wisdom, on the other hand, says, if you turn to me, you've got life. So there's wisdom on the one hand, folly on the, the other. How do we become people who become wise? I mean, this, obviously the course of our lives will be steered by whether or not we learn to become people who are increasingly wise and follow Jesus, and we could be destroyed if we become people who are fools. And sandwiched right in between the stories of these two women is a passage that I think tells us how it is we become wise. Verse 7, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. So what makes the difference between a person who learns to choose wisdom and a person who decides to choose folly? And if you look in verse 7, he talks about how 
we respond to correcting. In verse 8, he talks about how we respond to reproving. In In verse 9, he talks about how we respond to instructing and to teaching. So the way that we respond when someone comes and exposes our lack of wisdom and teaches us the way of wisdom will determine whether or not we become wise. The wrong response in all these verses is scoffing. And this is where if someone challenges us, someone uh, rebukes us, corrects us, or even offers us teaching, we very quickly reject it for whatever reason. We're too good for that. We're above that person who's talking to us. And so I need to shoot down the fact that this person's coming to try to talk to me and tell me something's wrong. And the truth is, I know Christian leaders who are like that. Leaders who are so insecure in their leadership that if someone comes and challenges them, they'll destroy them. You can just see the line of people going in one after another, and here comes this next guy, and he's going to challenge that leader, and what's going to happen within a couple weeks? They're going to slander that guy. They're going to wreck that guy. They're going to make him look like he was terrible because he brought a mild challenge. Scoffing can happen. Something else that we've got to realize is that sometimes as Christians, when we offer instruction to people, people don't always like it, and sometimes that can happen in a very broad sense in culture. You know, so far since we've started Grace Road, uh, God's given us favor in this town. We've got a lot of friends out there. We don't have a lot of enemies. A lot of our unbelieving neighbors around here love us. You know, it seems like the guys who run the restaurant downstairs that we rent from, they like us. The owner here likes us. We've got all this favor and all these people who just love Grace Road, which is a great thing to have, and I'm glad we've got it. But there's probably coming a day when our culture won't like the biblical instruction that we hold out, where they reject it, um, you see in this passage them being a scoffer being pretty violent to the people who are coming and trying to correct. And that could happen, and that won't be a sign that anything's gone wrong here. And when it does happen, let's just make sure that we keep loving, keep serving our town, keep giving to our town, keep being generous. We don't return, uh, good, we don't return evil for evil, but we return good for evil. We bless people. Let's serve and bless, and, and like Tom Petty, let's not back down. Uh, let's, let's just keep loving and, and telling everybody, hey, here's the gospel, here's what we believe, and if people scoff and people reject it, we'll just keep loving them in response. Now, most of us probably wouldn't go as far as that first scoffer, like where you're violent and injuring somebody because they're correcting you, but many of us don't learn wisdom because we aren't correctable by other people. We just send off those signals that you don't approach me. You've got more seniority than all these other people at work, so who are they to question you or challenge you? Or with your spouse, you put up this wall that says, you dare not correct me. You dare not challenge anything. And if you do, I will belittle you. I'll shoot you down. And so we put ourselves in this place where we're not correctable. And if that's where we are, we won't grow. And sometimes even as parents with children, we refuse to listen to something that our kids might bring us that could be good correction, that could make us wise if we listen to them. Uh, last week, Sophie and I, uh, he's, she's our six-year-old, we went on a date, and, um, and on dates, you know, she asks the deep questions, and so we're sitting there, and Sophie doesn't have an indoor voice. She, she only talks as loud as possible all the time. And, um, and so we're sitting at the restaurant, and she says to me really loudly, Dad, why do some people have eyebrows that go all the way across like this? And I'm just thinking, oh, no. Like, I'm looking around, like, thinking that this girl's projecting, so the guy's probably right behind me. She's probably looking right at him. I'm going to turn around and see. <laughs> and so, so no, Sophie, no. And, um, so so there, there wasn't anyone there. So I said, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know why that is, Sophie. She says, I think that looks funny. And, and I said, yeah, I, I do too, Soph. And then she says, Dad? I said, yeah. She said, you need to shave right here because, <laughs> because your eyebrow's growing across like this. And so in that moment, 
I mean, she totally set me up. I mean, it was, it was like Nathan correcting David, thou art the man. And so in that moment, I can, I can scoff and I can say, I have been wearing eyebrows six times longer than you've been alive. Um, I know how to handle this. I can scoff. I can reject her. I can say I'm better than this. I can say I'm 34 and you are six. Who are you to come and talk to me about my eyebrows? Or I can go home and groom accordingly. (laughs) And and really, this is the choice. This is the choice between wisdom and folly. I can either be wise and pluck, or I can go home and and be a fool all the time because I'm not going to listen to a six-year-old. You know, I really think that even when we're in positions of leadership, we should be people who are quick to listen. Um, any leadership positions that God puts us in, and I believe, obviously, the parents are leaders in their home. I, I believe in leadership. I believe in positional authority. But any of those places where God puts us, he calls us to lead and, and model or find our model for leadership in God, not in the world around us. And when we look at God, when we look at the Godhead, we have God who's Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. So we have this one God who's three in one, and within that Trinity, there is leadership. The Father leads the Son. The Son leads the Spirit. We see real leadership happening, but also within that trinity, we see mutual submission, mutual delight, and there isn't this, um, we see equality, but different roles. One of the things that we always have to realize as human beings is that anybody that we're leaders over, we are the moral equivalent of. We're not better people than them. And so that means when people come to bring correction, we should be quick to listen, even if they're people that we have authority over, even if they're people who are younger, even if they're people who themselves have a lot more folly in them than we do. The big distinction between someone who becomes wise and someone who stays a fool is how do we respond when we're corrected? Whether it's someone who's above us corrects us, below us corrects us, how do we respond when they come and they bring that correction? Do we quickly reject it or do we listen? We really have to learn to love correction. And this is something I I, want to learn to love. Our elders here are good at correcting me on a couple of key issues. Um, Jeff Lawrence is good at calling out, you know, why are you doing so much with your schedule? Why are you overextending? Uh, Tim Dietrich will call my wife on a regular basis to see how I'm doing, to make sure that I'm actually showing up at home. Because he knows he asks me and I'll say, yeah, everything's great. Debbie thinks that every day is Valentine's Day when she's married to me. It's fantastic. He calls her to get the real answer, he, just to make sure that, that I stay on track and that I am getting time off and spending time with my family. And I have to learn to love that. I have to learn to not just recoil when someone comes and corrects or someone comes and tries to straighten me out because a fool is someone who does that. Listen to Proverbs twelve fifteen. It says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 17.10, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. We just have to start with the default understanding that I'm wrong and there's much in me to correct. Because just as humans, we're very quick to self-justify. Um, I, I lose things a lot, uh, and it's kind of, I have the, the trinity of stuff that's supposed to be in my pocket, the cell phone wallet and, and keys, and 
most days I lose one of those three things. Uh, I don't know why. There's, there's something like deeply wrong with me. I've been working on it for years, but still I lose those things. I need to like have a special bin that everything gets put in like a TSA kind of when I first come in, to the, first come in the door. So it's always there, but I lose stuff all the time. And so every few days my car keys disappear. Every few days my wallet disappears. And this has been going on since I've had car keys. Uh, 18 years, I've been losing my car keys consistently. Still, when I lose my car keys and I see that they're not where I thought they were, my first reaction is, who moved my keys? <laughs> Regardless of the fact that for 20 years, I've been losing them every other day, this time, someone else must have moved them. I'm really quick to justify myself. I'm quick to assume that I'm not the problem and somebody else must be. Who, who took my wallet? Who took it this time? As if somebody's playing hiding games and putting my wallet in different places when I'm just notorious for losing that. Kids, what did you do with my keys? Sit them down for a lecture. You can't move dad's keys. And then I go out and they're in the ignition. Nobody put them in the ignition. I'm very quick to blame other people and very slow to assume that I'm the problem. But we grow in wisdom when we assume that we are the problem and we're quick to listen to people when they come and they bring the correction. Verse 9 again, he says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. And when we came to faith in Jesus, we came by being corrected. Uh, The gospel message says, you have broken God's law. You're more sinful than you could imagine. You know how bad you think you are? You're actually far worse than that. And to become Christians, we admitted that. And we admitted that I can't solve the problem. I can't save myself. I can't fix this. So I trusted in Jesus. That's what makes us Christians. But pretty often we leave behind what made us Christians and we start to operate under a totally different set of principles. And that just doesn't work. The principles that we came to faith under are the principles we're supposed to continually apply to our lives. And if we do, we'll become wiser. If we continually have that assumption, I'm probably wrong here. I'm probably a fool here. I probably don't have full understanding here. Then we'll listen when we're taught. We'll respond when we're corrected. And we'll grow in wisdom. We'll learn to turn to lady wisdom instead of turning to the woman folly. But if we leave behind the gospel and we say that's just something that got us started in the Christian life and now we start to operate under different principles, we'll never grow and we'll never become wiser. So we have to respond to correction. We have to live like we believe that gospel message and like it's just as much true today as it ever was. And then Psalm 19.7 says this. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So we need to respond when people come and bring us correction, but also the way that we become wise is by listening to the testimony of the Lord, by listening to the Bible, by being hungry for the word of God. We should be people who are hungry to be corrected by others, who are quick to respond really well to that, but also who are hungry to learn the Bible. It doesn't take much Bible knowledge to know more Bible than most Christians around us. Um, We're kind of living in a day of biblical illiteracy where people aren't taught Scripture too much in church services. Um, You know, maybe you went to Awana when you were a kid. You learned a lot of verses there. And really, you probably know more Scripture than most Christians will know because you spent a few years there when you were a kid. And it's easy to say, I've got this thing figured out. I've got my Bible knowledge down because I know more than these other people. But when did we get into a competition to know more than other people? We're supposed to compare our knowledge to God's knowledge, which means we always fall short, which means we should always have a hunger to learn and grow more. 
We should want to know more scripture. We, would, we should want to hear more teaching. We should have a hunger for the word of God. And if we have that hunger so that we're teachable, instructable, and we can grow, then we'll become wise. If we're proud, we think we've got it figured out, and we reject everybody who tries to correct and tries to teach, then we never will. So just ask yourself, how, how do you handle correction? Are you very defensive? Are you very easily offended? Where people know, I can't say anything to that guy. He'll flip out. Do you send signals that someone better not approach you? Do you have the bar set so high that someone has to have a 100% track record of being right anytime they correct you? Otherwise, they better not even try. Because if that's where we are, that's not a gospel-centered way to think, and that's not a way to become wise. If we really believe the gospel, we understand, ultimately, we're all fools compared to God. We need God, and we need other people. Uh, So for now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a second, please. You know, Christians, this is a good time to just confess that we have not loved wisdom. Sin has looked attractive to us. We've believed the lie that sin has more to offer us than Jesus does. And we've settled for our mud pies in the slum rather than for the joy of the holiday at sea. So now during this time, let's confess that to God. Let's confess our sin. Let's confess our shortcomings. Let's confess the ways that we just haven't listened. People have tried to correct us and we refuse to hear them. The scripture taught us and we refuse to read it or refuse to listen. Let's confess our pride. Confess the ways we've been too easily pleased with the carbs that folly offers and the ways that we've avoided wisdom's meat. Let's ask God for forgiveness and let's rejoice in his gospel. The message that he died to, to pay for all of our folly to pay for all of our sin, and that the cross is the wisdom of God, that if we believe in it, then we're forgiven, we have everlasting life, and now we have our grounds for wisdom in following Jesus. You know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, you may have heard that anything fun is something you're supposed to turn away from to be a Christian. Being a Christian is about duty. It's about following rules, going to church, putting in money. You do enough good things, and then maybe God will accept you. Maybe God will be happy with you. Um, and, and the less fun you can have in this life, the less joy you can have in this life, the better. Then the more pleased God will be with you. But the message of the Bible is that, yes, yeah, sin offers pleasure. Folly offers that bread that's stolen in secret. But wisdom actually offers something so much more, so much better. But the way that we receive Jesus is not by doing good things. It's not by becoming religious. It's by admitting our folly, admitting the ways that we've fallen short, admitting that we've broken God's law, and turning from whatever it is that drives us to trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. To trust that Jesus died for us on the cross, that he was buried, and that he rose again. To turn from sin, turn from unbelief, and to believe in Jesus for our forgiveness for our salvation, and for our life. So if you're here today and you say, I want that, please understand you don't work your way to God. You don't do good things to get him to like you. You just receive the free gift of the cross that he offers freely. He calls aloud from the highest places and says, here's wisdom, and holds the cross up and says, you can believe in that, you can follow him, and you can have life. So if that's you, just cry out to God and say, God, I know my sinfulness. I know I've fallen short, so I'm turning from sin and unbelief. God, I believe in you. I believe in you and your wisdom.
make me someone who follows you and who is wise myself. And he promises you that if you're turning from sin and unbelief and turning to his cross, that he gives you everlasting life. He gives you forgiveness. And just like wisdom here in this passage offers life to those who follow her, Jesus Christ gives life to all those who turn to him. But Christians, let's not leave behind the gospel at the moment that we come to faith in Jesus and then look for other ways to live. Let's grow in wisdom, true wisdom, by being correctable, by responding to the word of God, by admitting our faults, and again, confessing and turning to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you are, you're better than anything that this world has to offer. You offer a deeper joy. You offer better pleasure. You offer life. You offer lasting joy. And Jesus, I pray that we would look at your cross and believe that today. We believe in your love for us, believe in the life that you offer us. And as we believe in that and we follow you, I pray, pray that we would be people who, take, who make wise steps, make wise decisions. Lord, we've fallen short, but your mercy and your grace is great to us. And so for that, we worship you.